You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, everybody. Uh, rise and shine for this early Sunday morning Chiesa uh, de Tati podcast. We're coming to you um, live. Obviously, we're recording live. This is uh, Sunday the 11th. It's about 10 a.m. on the East Coast, so we're doing a little bit of a uh, role reversal here. Uh, our first three pods have been late East Coast time, so we've been keeping Sean up pretty late on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, we also, Steve has a busy day ahead of him today. I think he's got Home Depot, maybe Bed Bath Beyond, maybe some Target. Busy day for Steve. <laughs> The life of the night, man. <laughs> yes, the life yeah. of the night, man. I'm sure I, I can't relate to that. Um, so I'm coming to you live. I woke up just barely in the nick of time to catch the women's match today. So I was watching the first half under the cover of darkness because the sun hadn't come up yet. So uh, obviously we're all on Zoom here. I got some wicked bed head going. Uh, I got my Roma hoodie on because I don't really get fully dressed this early on a Sunday. Uh, so we're going to have sort of a, a wide-ranging discussion today, but um, – since the women just played, I think we're going to start off there by recapping the match uh, a couple hours ago. Um, so when the Roma women took on Inter Milan today on the road. Um, and so it was a matchup of, at the time, sixth place Roma and eighth place Inter. Roma was coming in on seven points. Inter was coming in on four. Roma had just won um, the match last week against Hellas Verona 2-0. Uh, so on paper, it seemed like it should have been a pretty easy victory for Roma. Um, and that's sort of how it went through the first half. Uh, the ball was moving quickly, lots of, they were dominating possession, really shutting down Inter. Um, but again, same thing we've seen on both sides between the men and the women. Uh, lots of ball movement, lots of chances, um, just weren't able to capitalize in the final third until literally the last second of stoppage time when Giuliano uh, found Anna Maria Sertorini uh, with a right to left cross just for an easy tap. And they had the ball move so quickly, the keeper wasn't able to move uh, quickly enough across the line to stop the shot. And so that was that. And then the second half, sort of picked off, picked up where the first one left off. We had two chances really within the first five minutes, two really golden chances. The first one, uh, I believe it was off a short corner, was Manuela Giuliano flashed it to the near post to meet Bartoli's run. So one of those ones, you have to get a really quick glancing header to tuck it into the near post. She got her head on it, um, just didn't hit it squarely. You could tell Bartoli was really upset, screaming, and sort of clutching in her own head from a miss. Um, and then about five minutes later, they had another even more open header from Paloma Lazaro. And she just sort of, to me, in my estimation, um, sort of nonchalant that it kept her feet down, just tried to swing her head into it rather than jumping and putting the full force into it. And it sort of skirted over the bar. 
And that's sort of how it went. And then Inter struck, I believe, in the 70th minute. They got a quick equalizer. Um, and then the final 20 minutes of the match, both sides trading blows. Neither one was able to sort of come through. Uh, Roma did have two chances towards the end. Bonfantini um, had one really close towards the end, was cutting in from the right, took a shot with their left foot, and it was deflected by the last defender. Um, and then in the 90th minute, there was a bit of controversy where Bartoli was taken down in the box by Flaminia Simonetti, a Roma player on loan with Inter. Um, but the referee just sort of ignored it, decided not to call the penalty, and the match drew one-to-one. So before we get into um, who the player of the match was, Sean, what did you think uh, went well? What did not go well in Roma's draw with Inter? What went well, I think – the I mean Roma, Roma's dominance in most of the games this season is is clear to see. I, I remember the commentator actually mentioned mid-match that Roma are third in the league for total possession right now, and it's probably gone up even higher after this match because they I mean in the first half they locked into right into their own half and never let them out. I think with um, with Petenuzzo at the back, Swaby and uh, Giuliano and, and Vesa in midfield. I mean, it's, it's interception city right now. Anyone who tries to break free of Roma's pressing just has no chance. You, know, you send it long and you've got Andresa Giuliano. You've got those four Roma players that are just ready to, to cut the ball off and send it right back in there. So I think it's a very dominant Roma side. The you know, possession is, is, is very well, is being done very well. There's a lot of variety of passing. Uh, they never really try and go through uh, unlock the unlock teams the same way twice and, and you know, they always try and go you know one time right one time middle one time left and keep keep opponents on their toes but what keeps going wrong is the finishing you know that i mean there've been clear cut chances made in every single game this season and those chances just haven't been taken and that's what's left the coach betty babagnoli um saying after the match that she she's a little angry and disappointed in her own words because it's you know costly chance to just keep going aside and, and we're dropping points because of it yeah uh, it's there's no argument here um you did bring up a good point just sort of how they never seem to take the same avenue um in the beginning of the match i was really sort of shocked by how deep juliana was she was really almost at the edge of their own box starting play yes. from there it's hard to tell if that was intentional now but it, it certainly seemed like it gave her more time and more space to see what was unfolding and i think for the first time at least this season she looked like the same player who was so dominant in the World Cup in 2019. She was really just picking out yeah. the pass, really just dropping dimes over to Serturini and everyone. Um, I'd, I'd say I'd say for the second time, because she, she was doing that last week against Verona, and that, that to yeah. me was really – that was a turning point where, like you said, <laughs> I, even, I even wrote that post-match. It, it looked like the Giuliano that we, we'd come to know and love in the World Cup 2019. So Yeah, yeah unfortunately, I couldn't wake up <laughs> for last night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, waking up at 6.30 on a Sunday is kind of tough for me. I was thinking about this before we started recording. Um, I have just like one of these memories from when I was a kid. So I was raised uh, Roman Catholic, and we would go to Mass every Sunday. But we go, mm-hmm. we, we go wicked early, eight, 8 in the morning on a Sunday. And so my bedroom when I was a kid was downstairs. So my mom would just knock on the door, Brendan, it's time to go to church. So I was like, okay, whatever. She'd usually bribe us. She'd take us out to breakfast afterwards or she'd buy us some candy at the <laughs> store. But my sisters uh, shared a bedroom upstairs. So what my mom would do is she was a uh, lady, so she didn't always go up and down the stairs. But what she would do is she would take a broom and she pounded on the ceiling underneath my sister's <laughs> This was like Sunday, like 8 a.m. And so you picture in the winter where it's completely pitch black. So I don't do well with Sunday mornings. That, that brings um, a very, it's a very literal meaning to the carrot and the stick right there. Yeah, she, uh, she wasn't messing around. But 
yeah yeah one of my uh more endearing memories <laughs> we we used to we used to do midnight mass so i, I was the opposite to you we, we, we only we weren't church growing every week but okay. we were raised catholic um and when it came to christmas time we do midnight mass uh christmas oh, eve okay. just before christmas day so yeah no we went because my mom just wanted to get on with the day so we were there eight in the morning it was yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm, uh, i apologize to our listeners if i'm not as articulate as i usually am um but yeah i was impressed with giuliano um Really, for me, that was the first time I saw, okay, this is the MVP who we saw yeah. in Italy and the MVP from, I think it was 2018, 2019, the year before he signed her. Uh, but I, I was sort of impressed with um, Inter's defense a little bit, particularly when things weren't going through the middle, when Giuliano would try to spring um, Sertorini down the left. He just couldn't get past, I think, um, yeah, yeah Martina yeah. Bustia, who was really just yeah. on her, like, full. Yeah, a very, a very different game from last week where you saw – that Giuliano looking for Sertolini on the left wing against Verona and the Verona left back, I think it was Salo, uh, was dead scared of Sertolini the whole game. She was standing off her, giving her 10 yards of space. Sertolini could do whatever she wanted last week. And then that, you know, must have fed into the sort of like a bit of a culture shock this week where you got Brustia, who's uh, much taller than Sertolini, wasn't afraid of her whatsoever, just, you know, stood her ground and Sertolini was looking for the for, for, for once, <laughs> you don't often see this from Sertorini, who loves to dribble, but she was looking for the one who's trying to play it around her opponent. And uh, it, just, it was clear to see that she wasn't going to get the joy down the left wing that she did last week. I think uh, what I, what's impressing me most about her this year, she seems like she's um, sort of slowly regaining her place in the team. And you know, look at the first year, she was a leading scorer and really their only sort of consistent threat and attack because they had, um, who was that, Luisa Pugnali and maybe Martina Piamonte. Neither one were as yeah. consistent or as athletic as she is. So yeah. it, really, it really seems like she's trying to stake her claim for that spot again. And I really, whenever I think about or write about the women, I hate to make male comparisons, but when I watch her play, to me, that's what Cengizunda should have been doing. That, to me, is what he should be. Because she's always a threat every time she has the ball. But like you said, she's not afraid, not, not showing any hesitance to work passing networks, one-twos, and things like that. She's not always yeah. just going right for goal, but she can do that. So to me, that's always what I thought Under should have been. So it's, it's nice to see her doing her, what she should her, be doing. Her actual impact of the game reminds me a lot of uh, uh, Shawari. Or, uh, I, yeah. I, I was, I was told I, I, don't, I don't pronounce his name correctly, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with El Shawari. Um, she's, she's a guy, she's someone who loves to cut in on her right and, and shoot. And that's, that's the one thing that, she brings to the team that no one else does. And uh, I've, I've really, I've struggled to understand how someone like Sertorini can, can make so, um, she, can, she strikes up very little chemistry with the, with the rest of the team, if, if I'm being honest. But yeah, still, she, she does manage to be effective in games. And I'm, I'm someone who doesn't really like, or doesn't really warm to players like Sertorini and Ashwari. <laughs> but then when, when, I, when I look at it at full time, I, I look back at the match and I think, you know what? It's really good to have these players in the team because they, they do keep the opposition honest. You know, they don't. No one knows whether Sertini is going to crack one from 30 yards and it's going to go in, or if she's going to, you know, if the defenders are going to stand off her too much, she might pass it into the middle, but don't want to play for other people, which she's been doing this season, and uh, she deserves a place in the starting lineup. Yeah, I, I think ironically, that's what makes her game and someone like her and El Shirawi or even maybe a younger Eric Lamello makes them so easy to understand, makes them so easy to digest is you don't really know a ton about tactics or football to understand yeah. why they're so good or why they're so dangerous. Cause she just exactly. has that, she has that individual ability to change yeah. a game like that. Um, 
Yeah, and certainly, I mean, that goal to score was just a bang-bang play. I think that was really emblematic of what we like to see, the ball just moving quickly, particularly laterally, and they just stretched the defense out. That keeper had no chance at that. Yeah, although I, I saw it a little bit differently. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't a Juliana cross. It was, she, Juliana tried a bullet shot at the keeper. Was and, it? Uh, yeah, and the prelay, the prelay got her hands to it, but she just parried it to, to, to the left and said, I need have an easy tap in. So. I'll, yeah, I'll trust your judgment. For me, that was like um, 10 of 7 in the morning. It was still pitch yeah. wild. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. You bring up another thing. So this match was, um, in the preview, I called it Stadio, I think, what's his name, Facchetti. Um, it's not really a stadium. It's just a training ground at Inter. And so oh, is because, it? Yeah, okay. so because of, because of that, the camera angle was super low, like almost like you're sitting in the stands watching. So, it was really really hard to see like tactical movements what they were doing yeah really hard to see the ball on the far side of the pitch so and the yeah. pitch itself was like the only way i can describe it is like if you had like a pair of green trousers and you spilled bleach on it it was just that <laughs> you, think, you think the pitches are yeah. bad even the men's game this was part of my french fucking atrocious <laughs> yeah so you the, couple that a, with a yeah, low camera it, it makes for some inter- interesting viewing those those nineteen um, nineties jean dyes. So that was yes. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like a stone wash if you had a pair of stone wash <laughs> jeans. Yeah. Um but so with match ended one to one. So let's talk about Sean. Do you think what were the key moments? Where did the match really swing for you? Where did they go from a one nil win to the draw? For me, I in the first half it was it was encouraging once they realized they weren't gonna get that joy down the left side. You know, you're thinking, well, is this going to be just this game where they're going to try and try, try the same thing again? And it's just going to end up nil-nil. Didn't turn out that way. They started to work the right side of the pitch. They could have worked the middle as well. And sometimes they did with uh, Paloma Lozado. She she showed some really nice touches to try and open up the middle. But um, but they ended up working that right side. And you had Angelica Sofia, who is another candidate for most improved player of the last two years. Um, who was doing overlaps uh, beyond Lindsay Thomas on the on the right wing? Uh, it was working. They were finding space on that right side, and, and that's exactly where they ended up unlocking the game with, with the one nil. Um, then there was, I mean, I thought another key moment, which would have contributed to the coach's anger at the end of the game, was in the first half when Thomas found herself sliding a ball from the right. Into the into the box and is begging for someone to to run on the end of it, get on the end of it, and just smack it. And it, it was really uh, that's normally Andrean Hegerberg's job, but she wasn't there. It's just the ball the ball rolled to nothing. And uh, I think Roma were very guilty of uh, not making enough, not, not attacking the space, and not attacking the goal enough. They, you know, they, they, if they really fancied this game and winning it, they they would have gotten more bodies up to to try and finish around the box. Um, then. In the second half, a real key moment for me. I actually missed the first 10 minutes of the second half, so I didn't see the Bastogli chance. But um, Lanzaro's missed header, gaping wide. He couldn't get a bigger chance on the plate than that. Tomat served on the plate for her. It's the, most, the clearest of cut chances ever. Yeah. And she somehow heads it off target. It's just unbelievable. Um, and from that, the you know, Roma's disappointment is compounded by Bartoli letting uh, Gloria Marinelli run in behind her, uh, score a very, very unlikely goal, it has to be said. You, you, know, you don't often get players smacking one into the roof of the net from uh, into, the, into the near post, you know, from, from, the, from the near side. It's, it's, it was a, a quality finish, but avoidable. And then the last key moment for me was uh, Agnese Bonfantini came off the bench. Uh, as you mentioned, she tried a shot that was blocked. 
but you saw Andrea Hegelberg in the box with her, 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 her arms, you know, throwing arms up in the air because she knew she was free in the box. And if Bonfantini had just raised her head, looked mm-hmm. up, she would have seen an easy five-yard pass across goal and Hegelberg could have smacked in a 2-1. But, uh, yeah, those are Mikey chances. Just generally a game that was typified by, uh, as Davignoli said after the game, there's a, a lack of desire to to get up the pitch and finish chances. And that's what cost in the end. Yeah. I, outside of this match, I, I have to say, uh, Egerberg is probably one of my favorite players to watch just because of what you said, her, just her facial expressions and her gesticulations. Yeah. Are yeah. Very entertaining. That's why I chose that image for the, the post rap. She has, she is such yeah. a, an evocative player. That summed up the game for me. That, that yeah, that I don't know if you noticed in the, in the first half, I think within the first 20 minutes, she went to the ground like three times attempting slide tackles and it just reminded yeah. me of when I first started playing FIFA uh the video game like way way back on Genesis before I knew anything about football I'm like oh that's just how you play you slide tackle yeah, you just slide tackle. Over, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hit the slide tackle button every time it was a lot of fun but obviously when you know more about the sport that's like um that doesn't happen that often I try to tell people that there's not that many slide tackles not that many bicycle kicks these are rare yeah. rare events and if, and if you're doing it so much so you, you must be in trouble you might you might want to learn something but yeah, yeah as, as, <laughs> As opposed to Manuela Giuliano, who is always on her feet, uh, she she actually at the end of the game she she didn't get she didn't win a ball that she wanted and ended up ended up sliding and fouling someone. But it actually you know, my my eyes are wide open because that never happens to Giuliano. She's yeah. one of the best defenders that I've I've seen in the women's game, probably the best in the league. Um, so many times she just stays on her feet, knows how to press properly, knows how to close down a player. And just knows how to time it correctly, so she she wins the ball back. One of the best ball winners in the game by far. Right. Um, yeah. My key moments, I can't really argue with anything there. Um, the Lazaro missed header was, um, yeah, that was pretty egregious. But the the Bartoli one was just she made a really great run towards the near post. I think it was Giuliano played a short corner, met it perfectly, and she just couldn't get like the right angle on it and just yeah. sort of missed. Um, all right. So we'll wrap that one up. So who would you say was your woman of the match for this one to one draw? I'd love to give it to Angelica Sofia because she played an amazing game. And if she if she keeps playing that way, then Roma's problems at right back are gone. You could see that she was, you could see that she's she grew up as a midfielder because she played some very inventive passes to put people behind the defence. But uh, I'm going to give it to Manuela Giuliano because she, as you said, was stringing everything together from deep, uh, passing it left, passing it right, constantly. You know, looking to give Roma the the player advantage all over the pitch, and even even pushing forward and attacking the space, like like we said, people didn't do enough of it. She tried absolutely everything to to bring the result home. Even smacked one against the crossbar after the keeper saved it. She tried a thirty yard shot. It was just, you know, she was unlucky to to not walk away with the three points today because she tried everything. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you. As I was watching, I'm like, uh, she was playing the best. I thought Sophia was pretty impressive as well. Uh, Hegerberg had her moments. Um, but, yeah, I'd have to give it to Giuliano. Um, so, up next for the women is next weekend, they have San Marino. San Marino. Yeah. Um, San Marino are currently in 11th place with a negative 16 goal differential. So, if ever there was yeah. a candidate ripe for a beatdown, it would be San Marino. Um, yeah, they, were, they were never never figured to be in City A this season, but. That's made right. it some sort of like back backwater channels. So, yeah. This is the match. It will be on the road in San Marino. And I, I would encourage you, if you've never watched one of these matches, watch it. Because they're, like we said, most of the matches are at small stadiums or training grounds. So 
given that there's no fans in stadiums now, you can see some interesting things. I think last year against San Marino, I remember if you're watching the screen, the goal on the left, there was a guy standing behind the goal with a German shepherd. And they both just stood absolutely still for 20 minutes. They didn't move as much as I was trying to follow the match. <laughs> I'm thinking, like, what the hell is going on there? I'm like, that dog's either, like, super trained or maybe just tired. I couldn't figure it out. He was just staying there for a good 20 minutes. So I find myself getting distracted by just the different things in the background. I think when Roma plays at home, there's, like, a, off to the right, there's, like, a gas station. I always try and look at what the price is and compare it to my local neighborhood. Yeah. I, love, <laughs> I, like, the, I like the games away to Fiorentina. I, I, I don't know if they started playing – like they, they kicked off this year in the Artemio Franchi, so they started playing in the men's stadium. But um, last year, we were playing, I think, at their training ground. And there were all sorts of, like, apartment buildings in the black. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's, that's one of the biggest things I've enjoyed about watching a women's game is that the, the, the men's stadiums or stadia are so homogeneous nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. But even, you know, whether you play Champions League, Coppa Italia, or Serie A, it just looks the same. And now we, we finally got... A game where it looks like FIFA Street, and you, know, you get different <laughs> different locations in the backdrop every every time. Yeah, I'm, I'm right. saying I'm I'm saying that with no you know no sarcasm or irony whatsoever. It really is genuinely yeah. enjoyable to to feel like you're watching an, an Italian game in Italy. So yeah, yeah, it, it has like a little more of a you get the feel for the neighborhoods in which the stadiums are situated, yeah. where you wouldn't get yeah. that on a in a bigger stadium. All right, so we, uh, we'll move it along. We'll um, make it a point to cover the women's team on these podcasts more, and we'll bring in some more outside perspectives. Um, yeah, we've come this far. I forgot to mention this is uh, Brent. I'm joined again by Sean and Steve. Um, I'm not sure where Jimmy is. I think at this point he's avoiding us like he owes us money. <laughs> <laughs> I was reminded of, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie The Bronx Tale. Yeah. I, it was my ex-girlfriend's favorite movie. I, I never really paid attention to it which i suppose is why she's my girlfriend now but yeah oh i loved it my dad made me watch it when i was a kid because he said this is what it was like growing up for us if i had an uncle who was um less than virtuous we'll say so he would take them to the pool yeah. and things like that but it reminds me of this one scene where the main character uh Caludero, he's like sort of an up-and-coming gangster he's walking across the street and you see this guy who owes him like five bucks and he's screaming and shouting threatening him and i think it was <laughs> steve was it uh chas palmentary's character i think he's like like why bother? He's like, how much did you owe you? Twenty bucks? He's like, that's it. He's out of your life for twenty bucks. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's why Jimmy's <laughs> avoiding us or if he's just really busy. But we'll cut slack. So the reason I, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy has Jimmy has politics friends and important people to talk to. So he's too busy for us. I know. I'm just messing with him. But the reason I bring him up <laughs> is uh, he did a, a really good piece. So we did our uh, transfer recap last week, I think, um, where we gave like grades and we talked about. It. Then Jimmy came back a day later or so from a Rome perspective and just talked about who are the winners and losers. Uh, that is to say, which players or managers on Roma stand to gain the most, which stand to lose the most based on the limited transfer activity. So he has his winners. He had Paulo Fonseca uh, simply because he got Smalling. He got Mayoral, these players who, who he really wanted. Uh, he had Smalling as a winner, um, obviously because he got his wish after many, many months of negotiation to return to the team. Uh, we had Ricardo Calafiori, uh, I think just by virtue of the fact that he's still on the team and he seems like he has a path towards some backup minutes. Um, then he has Jekko as a winner as well, um, because he'll sort of retains his spot as Roma's key man. Losers also in Dzeko, uh primarily because he had a chance to move to Juve for more money, more titles. Uh, we had Milik. Milik is obviously probably the biggest loser 
of the entire transfer market, I'd say, now that he's been left off of Napoli's roster completely. And then we had El Shirawi rounding up as our final loser of Roma's transfer market simply because his move didn't come to fruition. Um, so let's start with you. And, and the center house. Yes, yeah, the younger ones, because it's, it's a good problem to have, but they have four um, exceedingly capable center backs for three positions. So we'll start with Steve. Steve, we sort of froze you out on the first part of our discussion. <laughs> um, so ask it maybe a, a, take it any way you want. What do you think of Jimmy's takedown, or do you think there's maybe some other winners or losers, players who stand to gain or lose the most from Roma's transfer activity? Yeah, I think for the most part, I agree with Jimmy. Definitely start with Fonseca. Fonseca got the players he, for the most part, wanted. He asked for a Pedro-type player. He got Pedro. He got that experienced attacking midfield winger type. He got Smalling, who he explicitly named in one of his press conference so that multiple that's a big times, yeah <laughs> yeah multiple times so if he didn't get him that would have been you know I think hurtful for Fonseca but they got him the player he wanted they got him a different type of striker to to back up Jekko and potentially grow into a important player who can also play a little bit on the wing so I think in terms of and even Kambula is that aggressive center back like Sean talked about last uh, episode so I think they got him the players he wanted the type of players he wanted which is big um he still hasn't gotten those uh the right back um, situation is still an issue as always. He didn't get that type of right back he probably would desire. So I would almost throw uh, Bruno Perez and Santon and Karsdorp almost into the winner's category by default because they're going to get minutes that if Roma went out and got a more capable right back, they wouldn't have gotten those minutes. Some of them, Karsdorp was almost gone from the team. Um, so we'll see yeah. how that – we'll see how that plays out. Um, but I would expect – Pettis to start getting more minutes now that I I guess he had COVID for a little bit, right? He had to clear that protocol and yeah, you might be right. Yeah. So I, I would suspect maybe after the break, now that he's been training full, he might get the, the next start. We'll see. Um, but I think those guys definitely get a little pushed into the winner category. I think even um, Carlos Pettis, because El Sharari didn't make it here, we'll see more minutes than he may have if Cloyvert took around or uh, El Sharari came over. So I would even throw Perez into there. Um, Smalling, definitely a winner. He, he was, you know, pushing for that Roma move. But at the same time, I think Roma's a winner for getting Smalling. Even if some people didn't want him from a financial standpoint, he's 30 years old. He's, they want 15, 20 million for him. But I think it's important for Roma to have guys come that really want to be here. I think so often players see Roma as like a stopover, like we've talked about, where, you know, I'll come, I'll play for Roma for two years and I'll get my big move to the Premier League or to Barcelona or Juventus or wherever it may be, like we've seen with a lot of players. So I think from a Roma perspective, I think just the way Smalling has spoken about the club is, is a win for the club, even though, you know. Um, can, I, can I ask you this, dude? What, what do you think is, it is about Roma or even Rome, the city that compels players to, to want to come back? I mean, I think the city itself is kind of mesmerizing, I guess, when you think about it. It's, you know, 2,000-year-old city. There's a lot of cool things about the city. I'm sure the life in the city for a lot of these players is pretty good. Um, it's a very, you know, metropolitan city. Um, very different than, like, a Turin. I've been to Turin. I've been to many of the larger Italian cities. And, and when you're in Turin, it almost feels like, feels like a smaller town feel for a city than, uh, like, a Rome or a Milan. So uh, maybe just that that way of life where, you know, if you're used to living in Manchester or London, it's not that much of a different feel for you in terms of like a city feel. There's still plenty to do plenty for your yeah. family. I mean, everybody that a lot of these older players that come from abroad, even to Jekko, I, I know one of the big things with him was his wife loved being in Rome. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, the city itself has that appeal for players. 
I think some players might see the potential in the club itself that maybe could be unlocked with the right combination of players. You know, Jekko stuck around, you know, sometimes begrudgingly. Um, but even Pedro, <laughs> I think, came out recently and said, why do we have to shoot for fourth place? Why can't we shoot higher? Um, yeah. You know, that might be a bit optimistic. And I think it might be just saying the right thing to, you know, win over some of the, the fans early on in his Roma tenure. But I think certain players and maybe management might see the potential in a club like Roma because they're in the city of Rome. But obviously we know from experience that there's still a long way to bridge that gap from being, you know, the club Roma is to being like a major player every year. Yeah. But it's good to see that a player of small stature, I mean, he was a former England international. He's still only 30 years old, uh, played for United for a decade, one of the, you know, quote unquote, biggest clubs in the world, even though they've fallen off a bit. So I think it's important to see that players want to come because he could have gone to Inter, who's got a chance to win a Scudetto this year, and he, exactly. he stuck to his guns and wanted to come to Roma. So I think that's a, a big win for the club yes. um, in that regard. Um, so I think Roma comes out a winner in some, in some ways too. Right. Um, and then I guess we could come back to the losers, but I, I, those are my winners. All right. Uh, Sean, what about you? Do you th- let's start with the flip side. Do you think anybody on Roma's roster stands to lose? Maybe they're standing within the club based on Roma's transfer activity. Anybody going to lose out on minutes or a role? I, I, Tough to I, say because they didn't I, do much in terms of incoming think, transfers. I think Eden Jacko. Uh, I know he was listed in, in the losers, but I think for, for me, it's a very different reason. I think with Pedro and Mkhitaryan, he, uh, you know, the, the defense that comes into play whenever we criticize Jekko, and I'm one of Jekko's biggest fans, um, but we, we hear, uh, well, think about, you know, don't worry about the goal so much. Think about the hold-up play. Think about everything he does um, away from goal that helps the team. And that's true. That would have been true for uh, a young Roma side that way. He has to play with Cliver and Zaniola around him or Pellegrini and, and Cengiz Under. But now he's got Pedro Mkhitaryan. You know, we're not, we're not talking about Mancini and today in their prime ready to overlap Totti when he comes deep. You know, we, don't, we don't need the Dzeko that does hold-up play. We don't need a Dzeko that comes deep and, and occupies the same space as Pedro Mkhitaryan, which we've seen in the in the touch maps in the first few games, they're, they're playing too close together. They're taking up each other's spaces. So uh, I think uh, it was already a big enough ask for Edin Dzeko in 2017 to reinvent himself from being a striker to more of a complete footballer, which he did very well to do so. But, you know, it, we wouldn't have been able to raise these young forwards in our, in our, in our club unless he had done that. But uh, you know, now he finds himself in his mid-30s and Roma are asking once again to move with the times and become the player that he was five or six seasons ago, where you, you actually, excuse me, where you actually just you, you stay up high, um, you attack the goal, and you make you, you know you make sure that you keep the, the the opponent's back line standing back and deep, so that you can actually create space for Pedro Mkhitaryan behind you to to run at goal and run straight at goal, and and also make sure that they don't have to run so much because that, you know they're not. They're, they're in their 30s as well. They're not going to do overlapping runs all, all game. Otherwise, we're going to end up on empty field by December. So I'd say Jekko has been asked once again to, to remake his, you know, redefine himself as a player by Roma's transfer activity. And I'd also have to name Gianluca Mancini. Not necessarily a loser in the strictest mm-hmm. sense, but um, definitely handed the challenge to, to become the, the all round player and and the defender that he he's never become so far yeah yeah i i, I, I oh, go ahead Steve. 
I was just going to say when I was thinking about my my losers, and I same thing as Sean. I don't consider Mancini a, a full on loser in this situation, but it definitely makes his job more difficult and yeah. finding playing time more difficult, especially with the Euros coming up. And he's like a fringe player for Italy right now. He's definitely going to have to push his game to the next level for Roma, and then to make the the Euro roster. I think. Yeah, I, I I don't want to get too caught up in the term loser. It was just a, a catchy sort of headline thing. But I think you're both right. It's kind of ironic when Mancini was purchased. He was sort of seen, I mean, that was just last year, seen as sort of the future of the back line. And now he's had two younger players yeah. come in behind yeah. him. It's, wow. almost, it's almost like some, like they've like jumped on his shoulder and leapfrompt over his head it's, you know, out of nowhere. It's Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. That's a good problem to have. But um, I was going to save this for the next section. But since we spoke on Jekko, uh, so we reported late in the week about a possible contract extension for him, which would be essentially just a way to spread his remaining salary over three years as opposed to one or one and a half. But um, since you brought up the subject, how he seems sort of incongruous with what they're trying to do right now, is it a good idea to extend that for another year? How are they going to wean him off of being the top dog? Because we're already seeing, as you said, that he's not really jiving with what they're trying to accomplish. Mm. Can that can you sustain that for an extra year now? How is he someone who's going to age gracefully into a backup role? Well, it's only been a few games. I mean, you know, these you know, habits don't undo themselves overnight. So I, I'd give it a few more games to, for him to reach that understanding with Pedro Mkhitaryan. And, and you have to wonder whether we're actually going to play those three in every single game week in without week out anyway. But generally, he, you know, I, I hope to see a different game from him than what we've seen at uh, the beginning of this year. And I'm not even talking about all the missed chances, just, just different movement. Um, I think it does make sense to extend this contract because let's remember that a big part of the Millic deal that I personally was relieved about it not happening was that we were talking about signing Millic for slightly bigger wages than, than what Jack was on right now. So if you actually bring down uh, Jacko's wage packet and you know stop him from being such a high owner in the squad, then you take away the tool for um, you know the next the next Johnny come lately down the line, uh, his agent to come and say, well, you want to sign my striker? Great, but look at what your your lead star striker is on right now. We want at least wage parity, or we're not coming. And you know if you if you get Jacko down to like five million or so that he he'd be on with this contract extension, then you've you've given yourself some negotiating tools in the back for for the future. Sure. Yeah. Good points there. Um... Yeah, so with that in mind, let's transition to what we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about were Roma's finances. So this week has sort of seen a deluge of financial reporting on Roma and the league as a whole. Um, so we had, uh, who's the source of this rumor? Not a rumor. Uh, anyway, so a report came out um, basically tabulating the past 10 years of which clubs are running a profit, which clubs are running a loss. And it turns out, over the past 10 years, only four clubs are running um, in the black in the positive. So it's Atalanta, Sassuolo, Napoli, and Crotone, the only clubs who have made a profit over the last decade. And Roma uh, are not, rolling, not only running a negative, they have run into the, the negatives to 527.2 million euros over the past 10 years. And for reference, the team just sold for 591 million euros. So that is uh, quite a big dent. And so before we talk that, I wanted to read you a passage from the 2020 uh, Deloitte Football Money League, which measures uh, the top 20 um, most profitable teams in the world based on uh, this would be the 2019 revenue year. 
So I'll read this caption to you, then we'll just sort of give me your thoughts on how Roma got in this predicament and if there's any hope to get out. So in the 2020 Football League, um, Roma was tab- or, uh, excuse me, valued as the 16th most valuable club in the world, um, down one spot from last year. So this is coming straight from the report. AS Roma slipped to 16th place after performances in, in Serie A and UEFA competitions didn't quite match up to the very high standards of the 2017-2018 season. Following record revenue of 250 million euros in 2017-2018 after the club's run to the Champions League semifinal, overall revenue fell by 19 million, which was 8%, to 231 million. That is the largest drop in this year's Money League Top 20 as the club were eliminated from the Champions League in the round of 16 and finished outside the top of Serie A's top four for the first time since 2012-2013. Despite challenges on the pitch, AS Roma successfully negotiated new commercial deals with Qatar Airways, Hyundai, and Betway, uh, a deal which has interestingly since ended following Italian regulatory changes prohibiting gambling, advertising, and football to boost commercial revenue by $6.9 million. This increase in commercial revenue partly offset the reduced UEFA distributions and match day revenue from fewer Champions League fixtures. With the cancellation of the Betway deal and the lack of opportunity to partner with the betting industry, AS Roma continue to look to innovate in the commercial football landscape. The club is actively looking to collaborate with fashion houses, whilst reportedly also seeking to operate merchandising in-house following a deal to amend their current technical agreement with Nike. Roma's dynamic and creative approach to social media engagement clearly reflects a strategic approach with the club attempting to engage consistently with fans through its own content. Historically, Roma has been a club that relies on participation in the Champions League to hold a position in the Money League. And whilst this is still likely to be the case in 2019-2020, the club's efforts to differentiate itself, appeal to new audiences, and and to develop the revenue streams under its control should stand in good stead for the future. Um, so that's obviously a year old, but it's it gives you a five-year rolling revenue. Um, so we had 2015, they had 179 million, and then 2019, they had 231 million. But what I found interesting in that was a full 62% of the revenue comes from broadcast, 14% comes from match day, and 24% comes from commercial sources. So Sean, we'll start with you. Um, what do you make of Roma's current? Uh, financial quagmire running in half a billion in debt over the past decade? I don't know what to make about the losses because I, I mean, generally football clubs aren't, aren't, we don't expect them to be profitable anyway. We just ask for them to break even. And if you're doing that much, then you're doing very well already. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know where the half a billion losses have come from. I suspect that some of it would be going towards the, the stadium bid that's been going for a long time, but I don't think it would count for that much. Um, there's, it's got to be the, the, the board injections, uh, the cash injections. Uh, I remember there was the 225 million injected into the board around uh, 2017, the spring of 2017, which was actually down to Walter Sabatini, not to Monty, like many people like to say. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, was a, that was a record level investment at the time. And then I, I think that they actually came close to that this summer, but not quite with like, I think 179 million injected. But uh, I, I don't think that would have been included in the report if you're saying it's a year old. So I don't know. It's uh, I think the interesting part is what you said at the end, where 62% of the, of the revenue comes from TV. And that's generally a problem around the Italian league is that all the clubs are, are TV money dependent. Um, the, the stadia are in such bad shape 
and the match day experience in Italy is in, is in such a, a poor state of affairs right now that it's it's really hard for clubs to be the um, the masters of their own future. You know, they're, they're, they're renting stadia from, from the council. They're stopped by all this Italian red tape in terms of growing themselves as, as I know Stephen said, we don't call them franchises in Europe, but it's the best word for it. You know, they, they can't grow themselves as franchises. They're not really 100% private clubs you know they, they still have to work with the community which some would say would be great but in Italy we know that um, politicians tend to make a mess of things so I I think that being so TV mind dependent is a problem because that's what they're actually looking clubs like Roma are looking for that at the end of this year as, as the bailout they're looking for TV money to come in and, and really bail them out this problem Right. Um, Steve, I'll come to you in a second, but I would just, for reference, I'm looking at the, uh, the top three teams in this um, 2020 Football Money League, which is based on 2019 revenue. So we have Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Manchester United are the top three, and each of them um, accrue at least 45% of the revenue from commercial sources, and Roma's mm-hmm. is obviously they can't compete with that. So I think a lesson for that is they're not quite as uh, dependent on broadcast revenue, which is kind of strange in United's case because the Premier League – TV deals, yeah, it's huge. But but what you've seen from the late '90s um, to today for the Premier League to actually get that TV money is that they actually focused on the match day experience first and foremost, and they focused on great stadiums, um, safe stadiums, places where people uh, can, you know, all-seater stadiums where people can bring their families, and that's what contributed to TV networks handing over this money now, where you've got. Uh, great match day atmospheres combined with good coaches, good football, and you get the big money in. Yeah, I, I think that was certainly the um, the stereotypical view we had when I was growing up of soccer, football in England was just the hooliganism and things like that. So <laughs> I guess you have to credit the stadiums. I guess you probably also have to credit, who was it that started the premiership? Was that Sky? And Richard Richard Scudamore, the football league chief. Yeah. Okay. Um, Steve, so when we look at this, it obviously, it seems like obviously the stadium is a huge piece of it. But the thing that worries me is that people talk about the stadium like it's going to be a panacea, like it's going to solve all the problems. So, Steve, in your estimation, obviously, we're probably never going to see the day when Roma can spend with the likes of Barcelona and PSG and things like that. But in your estimation, what do they need to do in the short term to maybe get back to treading water, to get back to maybe a level zero where they can sort of build and sustain more revenue outside of commercial, excuse me, outside of broadcasting. Yeah. I mean, I think the stadium is definitely the biggest piece of it. Do you have Juve pulled up there? And just out of curiosity, what their match day revenue percentages? Uh, I can give me a second. Yeah. I'd be be Uh, curious to see because they're the big club that owns their own stadium. Right. Um, Obviously they spend more and they weren't profitable according to the last, the report, the 10 year. Okay. We're here. So I I pulled up Juve. So they made 459.7 million revenue in 2019. Uh, yeah, they're still pretty reliant on broadcasting. They had 45% come from broadcasts, um, which is more than obviously those big Spanish clubs we talked about, but it's nothing compared to Roma's 62%. But their commercial revenue uh, constitutes 41% of their income, whereas uh, match day is only 14. Mm. So maybe we just need Jeep, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting how they run things because Agnelli owns Jeep now, obviously through Fiat and they're basically sponsoring their own team. But um, on Roma's case, definitely the match day, you know, hurts, you know, losing the Champions League revenue. We see why we're so reliant on Champions League revenue, because when you read those numbers out, those 17, 18 numbers, when they went to the 
uh, semifinals were, yeah. were huge for the club. Um, yeah. And like Sean said, I'm not sure where all the losses are coming from, if it has to do with those cash injections or anything. But short term, I guess Friedkin just has to build a more sustainable business structure. He seems to know how to do that from his Toyota empire that he has down in the uh, Texas area down here in the U.S., the southeast. Um what has better resale value though an old prius or like a roma forward <laughs> <laughs> the prius is last uh, forever yeah i mean every club hits and misses on players so obviously some of our misses have been more glaring in the past few years which i think hurts a lot because we've also relied on player sales um but i think you know in in the long term roma has to if you're looking at from an on the field perspective i think they have to buy smart with the younger players um because when you do miss big, like a Schick or um, who is the other? Uh, Inzanzi. Inzanzi. Iturbe. Uh, that was the name I was eluding me. But those uh, yeah, kind of Tuber, players, yeah. when, we, when we miss on those players, it hurts us a lot more than Juve missing on a player or Inter right now missing on a player, which you but, know, adds but, to those losses too. The thing is, I, I want to say, and again, it's going to sound like I'm weighing in to defend Monty, but <laughs> if you if you miss out, on those kind of players, you want to miss out in a way that you missed out on Patrick Schick. You, know, you want the worst case scenario to be yes. that um, you're, you're on FFP, in FFP terms, it recognizes that, okay, you tried to develop a player. Um, it didn't, you didn't develop him to the best he could be, but you still moved him on. You made him a better player still than, than when he first entered the club. So you get a 12 million plus Valencia at the end of it. You, know, you get rewarded for that. Um, you don't want to miss out like you do with Juan Manuel Tudre, where you know you, you force the player to play. You're trying to uh, force him to play through an injury to save your job, and by the end of it, you end up you know shoving off to Mexico for five million and taking a loss. It's you know that's that's the worst case scenario. Yeah, it's it's hard not I, to feel it's hard not to feel yeah. bad for him. I really liked watching him play, and I think when he scored that goal in the derby, you can obviously tell that it meant a lot to him. Yeah. They, I think they forced him to play through was either like an MCL or PCL injury and. Yeah, there's no telling what that did to his career, but yeah, you're right. He's in uh, Liga Mexico now. Yeah, but I I agree, Sean. The way they missed out on Chick was definitely easier to to swallow because they were able to in the end make a little bit of a plus Valenza compared to an Iturbe. Those they they yeah. can't have those kind of Iturbe misses or the the, the Zonzi misses where the guy was never really a good fit yeah. on you know from yeah. the beginning he was a head scratcher. Um, you know, and Under and Kluivert could turn into profits in the long run if they go and have successful loans like Schick did. Um, but yeah, I think the whole thing, I think what we're seeing with Friedkin is he's probably going to try to overhaul the whole structure, the way this club is run. Um, you know, Petrarchi hinted at a lot of in, internal dissension amongst people in the hierarchy, which caused a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the whole business change, the stadium, if it gets approved, like, uh, Raji is saying it's going to get approved by the end of the year would be a huge boost for them um, because that also helps with the match day experience, like Sean said. But yeah, I, I think his comparison to England was great. When you see the way these Italian matches are on TV versus the English matches, it, the whole experience just seems different even from the outside looking in. You watch some, I don't watch the Premier League a ton, but when it, you put it on NBC over here, you see the way the stadiums are organized much more like you see in American stadiums where you can bring your kids to the stadium. You don't have to worry about them hearing racist insults being thrown at uh, African players or even black Italian players for that matter, who are born and raised in Italy, let alone, you know, foreign players. So, and there's no violence to worry about in England these days. You know, they've, I'm sure they've paid for it out of their pockets. Many of the fans I've heard the premier league tickets are very expensive for some of those bigger clubs, but 
you know, if you want the match day experience to be better, then you'll get more people in the stadiums. You'll have families coming to the stadium. And I think that would help in the long run. And even just the whole way these stadiums are set up with the running tracks, the, the antiquated setup is, is really terrible. Like I go to some uh, Red Bull New York games and they have their new stadium, which is, I guess, six, seven years old now set up like a smaller English stadium, 30,000 seats or whatever you're on the pitch. You know, I, I sit in the front row near the goal sometimes and, you're on the pitch. You look at these, like I've been to the Stadio Olimpico and you're like a mile away when you're in the Curva. So yeah. the, the whole experience, track. yeah, the whole experience has to be better. I think in that new stadium would help boost profits a bit. It's not going to help them make up 500 million euros in, <laughs> in 10 years for sure. Um, so I don't know if there's any easy fix um, as my, my answers become a bit long winded here, but they have to start somewhere. Obviously the stadium would be a big boost, but the, even just the the way they, spend and the way they're structured internally, I think would be a big, big start for them. So let's, uh, I'll, I'll come to you on this one, Sean, since you lived in the country for a while. Um, so there was, were some whispers this past week that they might be looking at different areas for the stadium. It seems like the Tor di Valle might be falling through. Um, mm. have, you heard, have you heard anything about that? To me, it would seem like if they're picking a new location, then this whole process might start over again. So we might be looking at another eight to 10 years of this nonsense. Well, uh, I might be wrong. I forgot, I'm going to get your perspective on it since you've No, no, you're right. I mean, I, first of all, I've never lived in Rome, so I, I can tell you what what the locales look like. But um, you are right that the process would start over again, or at least that they would have they would have the the legal means to pro- to start it all over again. But on paper, the process was never meant to last this long. Not even not even um, not even well not even on paper like i'm saying sorry um it's it's meant to be like a two to three year process maximum uh, what happened was that the, the stadium got redefined um midway through the last decade redimensioned in a way it was you know it was told to Pilata that he was aiming for something that was way too big taking up way too much um physical space in the city and that turned out to be the case you know they had to, they had to reduce the project the, the actual land site by I think it was 60% in the end, so like over half. Those extra um, towers, I think they were planning on. Yeah, extra yeah. towers. Um, they had like the whole thing about green energy using the you know water from River Tiber to 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 put on a, turn on the lights in the stadium, which was you know it was a good idea actually on paper, but um, yeah. it was just it was asking for too much change too fast. And you know, Italy is a culture where people are suspicious of foreign inter- inter- interference for centuries now. Yeah, so you, you're already pushing your luck by asking an American to come in and, and build a new stadium. You know, but to, to ask for them to build a stadium that um, involves so many changes was just too much. So that all that to say that that's why it's taken nearly, what, nearly a decade now is because it's actually, you've actually had two separate bids really made right. over the last um, decade or so. But uh, yeah, what's been promoted is what's been, proposed last year was Fiumicino where the biggest airport in Rome is located where, where you see the you know the scars at the airport and the 10,000 fans the proverbial 10,000 fans um that, I'm, that's, I'm still that, that was laughing it could have been Chris Morning this year had, had the pandemic not hit but um yeah no I, when, that, when that story came out I was like yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah it was negative yeah you're probably right but uh, yeah, that you have the Fiumicino's not the city center; it's not the heart of the city. It's, it's slightly out uh, west, um, closer to Daniele De Rossi's home uh, beach town of Ost- Ostia. Yep. So um, it's 
Yeah, for a Roma fan, it would be slightly strange to be going going out out outside the city. It'd be like Man United fans going out to to Old Trafford, which is not actually in the in the centre of Manchester. But uh, small price to pay if you want to see a, your club grow. They they were they were promising Roma they would they would fast track the bid if they if they started over to Machino because um, I mean evidently the the local area wants Roma's business. Um, what else? What other locales have been on on the card? I I don't think there have been many concrete bids from other areas. It's just it's Tordi yeah. Tordi Valley and Chimichino. That's it. I th- yeah, I think the airport one was interesting because that was, uh, if I recall correctly, that was uh, in the winter, and there was the rumors that the uh, Qatari group was considering buying the team, and I think mm. part of the leverage was that they were going to. Um, sort of make, I think, Fiumicino their hub, their European hub. So it brought like twice the amount of business to the city, to the country. So that seemed like yeah, the yeah. dominoes were stacked up for that, but that obviously never came to fruition. I was just going to throw in like from an American's perspective in terms of the stadiums being built, like I, Sean and I are both Islanders fans. They were playing at the Barclays Center with the Nets and bad fit, right? So the yeah. New Owners wanted a, a proper hockey stadium for the team and you know, it's in the process of being built now. I think it took them about a year to get the land at Belmont, organize everything. You know, and this is in the New York, the five boroughs of New York. Belmont, where, like you know, a, like land race, is at... Like the racetrack? Yeah, yeah, right at the racetrack. So, you know, land is at a premium in, in the five boroughs of New York City. And they were able to organize with the government and get a, you know, stadium approved within a year, I think. And now within two years, it'll be built. And they'll have their own stadium within like a three-year period. And this is not a, you know, big hockey club in franchise, yeah. yeah not a big <laughs> franchise in terms of like the hierarchy of the nhl so it just shows that how much red tape think, is in Italy, think, you know i think me, me and steven might just account for about 50 percent of all islanders fans worldwide so <laughs> especially yeah. outside of long island yeah outside of long island, <laughs> we're probably about half the fan base but yeah. it, it just shows how a smaller franchise because they're definitely in the bottom 10 of the nhl in terms of revenues and stuff maybe bottom five um they can get a, a stadium built so fast you know, with a big sponsor like UBS. And it's just a bit mind-boggling that in a major city like Rome, a big, one of the top five biggest clubs in Italy can't get a stadium built in 10 years. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. Yeah, yeah so this, this whole conversation just started with a, a quick report that was on uh, Football Italia that just sort of outlined this report uh, over the past 10 years. So that they didn't really um, delve into specifics, but we're talking about half a billion over 10 years. So that's 50 million a year. I mean, that's... It's got to be more than just transfers gone bad. That's a system, yeah. systemic problem, systemic issues there. Um, yeah, so in that uh, Deloitte thing we just read, they mentioned, and Sean, you wrote this piece uh, about a year ago about sort of the reworking of the Nike deal where Roma was taking more control. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then here we are uh, a year and a half later, and there's rumors that they're going to be – well, they are ending the Nike deal definitively. We know that. Whether it was their choice or Nike's choice, we don't really know. Uh, but where rumor came out late in the week that Roma might be signing with New Balance on a four-year deal. Um, obviously, we don't know the terms of that, and none of us are kit experts. But what would they need? What can New Balance offer them that Nike couldn't? What would they need to sort of make this a good deal, do you think? Well, hopefully more money. That, that was always uh, the what was making Roma unhappy on their side of the, the Roma-Nike partnership was that the – I mean – at first, it sounded sexy when they, they announced right at the beginning of the deal as a, as a 50 million sponsorship yeah, deal. 10 year deal, you know? too. Yeah, 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 but that was a problem. It was actually, you look at, you know, the, the second sentence says it's over 10 years. So it was 5 million euros <laughs> a year, you know? Um, it sounded like, it you know, Roma, up, 
Yeah. It's not like when we're, we're competing with, you know, Juve's Adidas deal and the last Puma deal and all that, but yeah, we actually, we're getting money over a much longer time, like like we're t- trying to do to Edin Dzeko right now. So um, it, you know, five million a year is not a lot. Um, it, you know, that's all you want from the New Balance deal. I, I couldn't tell you anything about aesthetic choices or, or what kind of kicks you will look forward to, or whatever. I think Roma just want more money up front, and yeah, that's um, that's what the, hopefully they can get from the, from the next deal. Because as as was as you mentioned in that Deloitte, um, you know that segment, uh, they've been doing a lot. They've been striking. They've been inking a lot of contracts where sponsors aren't necessarily paying them to sponsor the, sponsor the club, but they're they're working in partnership to try and spread Roma's name around social media. You know, you got the official mobile phone partner, the official car partner, the official uh, golfing partner, you know, it's, it's gone into all sorts of avenues just to try and spread the Roman name and try and make it as ubiquitous as possible. And uh, the aim of that is to get Roma mentioned so much that, you know, a, an actual main sponsor will come in and, and front the money. So that's what, let's hope that all that work they've done, signing up all these names over the last few years that, that aren't actually paying any money, but are working to, to push the Roman name online uh, it actually pays off with this new kit sponsor deal. Yeah, I uh, I think we've all been kind of spoiled by Nike over the past few years. They've done some some really good uh, kits, really good looks. Uh, like as I like I said in that piece, it would take a monumental effort to make Romo's colors look bad. So hopefully, yeah, we're not in store for that. Um, Steve, what do you make? I, of, what do you make of the New Balance deal or potential? Yeah, deal? so as someone who buys Nike sneakers, who's, you know, American Nike's a big presence in sports in general, you know, they've got the MLB contracts. Now they've got a couple, I, th- I think they have, uh, they still have the NFL, right. And uh, I think even the NBA. So their ma- biggest player on the world stage. So when Nike was signed, I was very excited about that almost a decade ago. Um, I think they've done a great job for most, the most part. Um, the jerseys have been very nice, um, very eye catching. So I'm hoping that the, the look doesn't suffer under new balance. As someone who buys at like usually at least a kid a year, I, I tend to buy one a year. Uh, yeah, it's you got the blue one on right now. Yeah, I've got the blue one on from last year, which is one of my favorite ones that Nike made. Um, I like the white ones this year. They, they've had a lot of nice stuff. Um, so as someone who likes to collect, that's kind of my guilty pleasure uh, is collecting, you know, football kits. I guess you could say. Um, I hope that the look doesn't suffer um, because from what I remember, a New Balance is only you know they only do a few clubs. Liverpool was one which they that contract ended recently. Um, you know, nothing that Liverpool wore was really eye catching under them. I didn't think that I can recall off the top of my head. Well, I like that. Uh, I like that home kit from last year. I really like that one. Yeah. Sim- it was simple, right? It was just, yeah. Simple yeah, with it, like simple, gold trim. Mm-hmm, simple's fine sometimes, but um, I just hope that under new balance, which is not like a known football commodity that uh, the marketing aspect doesn't suffer. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, the casual fan will still go and buy a kit if it's New Balance, maybe, that rather than, like, someone who's just a casual, you know, football fan sees a nice jersey and will buy it because they collect football shirts. And, you know, Nike might appeal more. So I don't know, you know, how much that would hurt or help the business. But I, I know you brought up the uh, Juve deal. So as you were talking about, I Googled it. Juve is getting paid by Adidas $408 million uh, euros <laughs> over eight years. So they're pulling in in one season what Roma was pulling in over that whole Nike contract. Um, yeah, 10 times. Cristiano Ronaldo's presence is a big reason why, because, you know, Adidas knows they'll make the money selling Ronaldo jerseys, I'm sure. Yeah. But it, it just shows, like, that deal covers his salary and then some, you yeah. know, and his inflated salary compared to the rest of the league. Um, 
So yeah, I just hope that moving to New Balance doesn't hurt them from a, a perspective of people not really associating New Balance with, with soccer, I guess you could say, or football. Um, but I, I hope that the, on the flip side, what could benefit them is that since New Balance isn't making you know, uh, all these other big time clubs, that they focus their energies more on Aroma and Roma becomes their, their key team. And then they try to market it more yeah. that could, that could benefit them in the long run, especially obviously if the financial terms are better, we, we take the financial terms too. Yeah. It, it could be very symbiotic, but I would love for them to get back to these. I'm holding up the camera. <laughs> oh, the D- uh, the Diodora. shoes. So I was about a year ago at a, uh, I just went to a doctor's appointment. I was wearing these and the doctor, I believe, uh, was from somewhere in Eastern Europe. He goes, Diodorus. He's like, the only people who wear those are Italians or soccer players. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I, I, that was my first Roma kit was a Diodora when I was in Italy uh, super comfortable. 15 years ago or so. Yeah. Was that 0607? Yeah, yeah. The one, uh, the, the year after the World Cup victory. Yeah. That yes, was my first Roma yes. jersey. I got, those, a, I got those, a Totti jersey in Italy. Those were beautiful. And Totti yeah. scored the best goal I've ever seen in that kit at away to Sampdoria. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That was the season. And um, but does it? They don't sponsor anybody now besides the referees, right, Diodora? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, yeah to just right. the league. Yeah. The league. Yeah. League gets sponsor. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right, Steve. I think uh, this could be a mutually beneficial arrangement for New Balance and Roma. Um, all right, guys. I think we'll uh, put a pin on this one for our first ever Sunday morning Kiesa uh, de Tati podcast. So uh, coming up this week, it's still another international break. Uh, we do have, who do we have this weekend? Benevento? Uh, next weekend is Benevento, yeah. Weekend. Um, so I think throughout this week, uh, I've been talking to Jonas behind the scenes. We might sprinkle in just uh, intermittent series about other teams we like. So I know Jonas is working on one about Deportivo La Caruna. So that'll be interesting to see what Jonas likes about them. Um, so look for those. We'll sprinkle them in during downtimes. And uh, yeah, as always, thank you guys for listening. Uh, give us a good rating if you like what you hear. Um, we're always open for feedback because this is still only our fourth one and I've got some massive edits to do on this one because we restarted a few times. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we'll chalk up that. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Sean. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye.